Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alva. And I'm Harry. And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we're going to discuss sexism in Westminster and talk about the Labour Party's hopes ahead of the local elections. And then there's a very special You Ask Us. Now, sorry, this morning I might sound a bit fuzzy because we were at the Publisher Podcast Awards last night where we actually won Best Political Podcast for the second year in a row. But it is a bittersweet morning because it's Alva's last New Statesman podcast. She will be back on Westminster Reimagined next week with Armando Iannucci, but she is moving on from the NS. I don't think you can tell us much about that yet, can you, Alva? No, more details soon. Okay, so watch this space. Um, I'm not going to try and get that exclusive on this particular podcast. Um, But yeah, sadly, we are discussing a rather grim topic. It's been an unedifying week in Westminster. Um, First of all, we had the story in the Mail on Sunday. A Tory MP was saying that Angela Rayner crosses and uncrosses her legs in front of Boris Johnson at PMQs to try and distract him because she doesn't have his Oxford Union debating skills. And there's been a, a big outrage following that um, among journalists, MPs and staffers in Westminster. Tory MP has been accused of watching porn in the Commons and we've found out that 56 MPs, including three cabinet ministers, are facing allegations of sexual misconduct. Alva, you wrote about your own experience with Stanley Johnson last November. We won't talk about that specifically, but the response that you got from fellow female journalists, politicians, people working in Westminster really showed that there is a culture problem in Westminster, didn't it? Yeah, I think so. And it's a bit exhausting. I've just finished writing my last ever cry morning call um, oh. um, about this. And I think this applies not just in Westminster, but really across the board that I think it's it's just really difficult and it's the way it is that in order to change this culture, it requires women sort of airing their dirty laundry in public, going through in like horrible detail their most intimate experiences of being demeaned or undermined. I think it's horrible. And the the female MPs who were sitting beside the MP watching porn haven't been identified, which means that this is there's at least a little bit of nice anonymity to that one. Mm-hmm. But I just think it's it's a bit exhausting. I think you can feel that in Westminster that certainly from my own experience, one of the really nice things about speaking about that was having this lovely experience of being so supported by women in Westminster I feel like there are so many really sort of no nonsense strong tough ballsy all the cliches <laughs> more senior women very like senior politicians from all parties really senior female journalists um, and staffers spads and so on who really are like quite determined not to put up with this but it's still just quite exhausting and I also think at this point, who needs to be persuaded that there's a problem? <laughs> do yeah. we need do we need any more stories like this? <laughs> you know, because I mean, the Pestminster happened five years ago, and I think it's been, I don't know, it's been it's been strange. My only experience of of journalism in Westminster is as a young woman doing it. Don't know what it'd be like to to be anyone else, but I, and and also because this is sort of the only work environment I've known. 
I don't really know how it compares, but I do gather from friends <laughs> who work in more normal jobs that it is particularly bad. Yeah, I mean, I so I kind of wrote in Morning Call today, it's hard, it's hard when the topic is this broad. Mm-hmm. I wrote that, you know, maybe it would be good to have another conversation about this, but it would actually, I think personally, be great if we could kind of skip that step of people having to excavate their own personal experiences and to just get to the actual meat of of maybe changing some of the more concrete things that you can do, especially around, I think, sort of normal HR practices. Because I think that for all the women MPs have quite an awful time in the public eye and their challenges being a female journalist or whatever, I do think that the people who have it worst are staff members who don't have any sort of platform, but are the people working most closely with for example, the kind of MP who watches porn in the House of Commons or the kind of MP who briefs the mail on Sunday that Angela Rayner crosses and uncrosses her legs to distract the Prime Minister. Like There are often young women working for these people and there aren't really proper HR practices in place to protect them or to, to, to help them assert their rights and sort of just normal working practices. You can, yeah, and, and you know, as, as you mentioned, there are 56 people under investigation at the moment you know as well and 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 also you Harry like they're just they're just men you know to avoid you know, not to be in a lift with and that's that's just awful there's so many people where it's, it's sort of open secret that they're kind of dodgy and so little of it is aired in public that was a bit of a ramble <laughs> no 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 it is bad and like you say you know I mean I'm sure you're exhausted getting media requests to talk about, you know, is there a problem in Westminster? Well, yes, there is a problem in Westminster. I mean, and should you know it, what? should it be up to people like you to, to talk about I it? I maybe shouldn't say this, but I thought it was... I, when I saw Angela Rayner on Lorraine, I thought, oh, that could have been me because after the Stanley Johnson <laughs> thing, Lorraine did get in touch. Really? Wow. And at the time, my friends and I were just sort of joking about what it would have been like for me to be on Lorraine. <laughs> no shade to Lorraine. She's such an icon. I but, love Lorraine. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it is. It is a little bit exhausting, I think, and 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 also, I think you know, no one massively wants to be defined by it. I mean, in in different contexts, people talk about. I mean, this it's kind of different. There's not really comparison, but with racism, there's that quotation. I can't remember who it's from. That like one of the main harms of racism is like its distracting power. That like mm-hmm. that people of color spend so much time having to deal with that rather than get on with their lives, get on with their work. That it's sort of exhausting and distracting. And I think that that's probably just how a lot of women in Westminster feel around the the sexism culture. That actually like they would just rather get back to talking about all the many, many things that are going wrong right now and, and how they plan on fixing them. And, and then I feel similar that for all that people have been very supportive, it's also a bit difficult to be always asked to, mm. to you know, come on come on this radio show and chat about, you know, the, the culture of sexism in Westminster and people love a personal story and would probably love for me to share more. Um, and as a journalist, I get that, but that's, it's just, it's tiring, isn't it? yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I think what's particularly depressing, actually, is that these stories roll around. You mentioned the Pestminster scandal. I remember reporting on some of uh, what was happening, particularly to staffers around that time. It was off the back of Me Too, wasn't it? And I think there was a Labour Too movement because, you know, people were focusing so much on the governing party. Labour staffers were saying, no, you know, our our politicians are, are doing this to us, too. And I think that side of it is particularly depressing because there's there's not really an incentive for any of the parties to go that hard on this stuff because they know they've got their own 
you know, they've got their own problems with sexual harassment in their own party. And so you get this weird stasis where nothing actually does change. You know, the HR systems don't toughen up properly, even though that was what was supposed to change after last time and the wave of complaints that came in last time. Um, And there's also this sort of like weird... I don't want to say macho because, I, I, you know, women also express this sentiment as well in Westminster, but this sort of feeling like we're different. You know, we work every hour God sends. We don't have HR. We don't complain. You know, we're, we're doing a job that no one else understands. And that's something that Hannah White was talking to me about from the IFG on the last episode, this culture of sort of exceptionalism where people feel that they, they work in a very different workplace from everyone else, which in a way they do, but it doesn't mean that those safeguards shouldn't be there that the rest of us can resort to if something bad happens to us in the workplace. My, my question with this would be, it's amazing how much turnover there is actually between uh, MPs. So I think something like f- fewer than a quarter of current MPs were there before 2010. So over the next decade, we have a chance, you know, there will naturally be a lot of replacement of the MPs that we currently have. So how do we ensure that the people that come into the House are people who aren't going to be continuing this behaviour? If it's a cultural thing, then we have a chance to change the culture. So I don't know what you think. It's a really good question because I think what happens is um, they do their usual vetting practices and some of this stuff doesn't doesn't come up in that. And perhaps some of these MPs or other people who work in, in Parliament have never done something like that before. But because they come to this place where, you know, there is a drinking culture, there is a long hours culture, they're away from their families, there are lots of young people around, um, then they might sink into doing something that crosses a line, you know. So it might be that the actual culture of that of Parliament creates and its working problem. practices creates the problem. Right. So it's a problem with changing the culture in the institution rather than sort of raking through the uh, sort of uh, employment history of someone and maybe that's that's the issue. I would also hazard a guess with, I mean, without wanting to be rude about the 2019 intake in particular, I think this is actually just a, a helpful insight into politics in general that you're often looking at a lower quality of MP in a seat where they weren't really expected to win. So quite often, and this is true, Conservative Party, Labour Party, SNP, if you look at the MPs who cause problems, not just in terms of what we're talking about, but actually in terms of just sort of going off script, disagreeing with the party line, causing a fuss, doing something incredibly embarrassing. I mean, I'm thinking of Tory MPs, Labour MPs, SNP MPs, people from all parties, the ones who do something embarrassing or stupid or who don't toe the party line, who cause issues, um, they are really very often people who weren't expected to win in their seat. They were elected in a really tight marginal. Dare I say, perhaps a mean example, but Margaret Ferrier, the then SNP MP, she lost the party whip over this, the SNP MP who took a train while she had COVID, if you remember... That's a, that's a prime example of an MP who wasn't expected to win in her seat and then has sort of caused her party embarrassment subsequently. She doesn't have the party whip. She won't get it back, probably won't be re-elected, but she's still an MP for the moment. There are examples of people like that in every party. And then that's obviously particularly the case with the 2019 intake. 
no shade to the Conservatives in particular, but just because in so many of those seats they didn't really expect to win by such a landslide. So I think it's where they're Stanley a candidate, but they don't think that this is a future MP. I think that that's where you sometimes get a slightly lower calibre of person. And there are kind of basic things around you look at the social media history of of certain current Conservative MPs elected in the 2019 intake and there's a lot of quite sexist stuff in there actually so I think even the vetting practices aren't perfect but as Anush says it's it's other stuff as well it is just the the culture and I think the the way I mean I, I I'm always confused by this but that that sort of thinking of exceptionalism in Westminster I still kind of subscribe to maybe I'm just you know institutionalized, <laughs> institutionalized because we do work longer hours. It's quite normal to go for a drink with a source. There are more parties. There are party conferences. It's a kind of different world. And lots of people live their whole lives in that world. You know, that's like often the world in which people date. Don't think you should do that. I've never tried. But, <laughs> but you know, it's the world in which people date. And, you know, I think lots of people have affairs and all that kind of thing. It's a, it's a really kind of different old school world. I think there are aspects of it that people find quite sort of glamorous and exciting and kind of fundamental to politics which is a really social profession I honestly think that when we have these conversations about protecting women draining out the misogyny of it people on some level are thinking sure how do we fix that while keeping it fun yeah <laughs> which is awful yeah but but that's that's the problem I think yeah and as you said you know it is exhausting talking about these issues so we won't talk about this for the whole episode I really wanted to ask you a bit about Labour's prospects ahead of the locals you know they seem to have got themselves in a little bit of a tangle over messaging in the past couple of weeks I don't know if you've if you've kind of picked up on this there was a report that Lisa Nandy had suggested at Shadow Cabinet that it might look a bit out of touch only to talk about Partygate when the when living standards crisis is worsening um, especially as people are you know about to vote next week week. And you saw Keir Starmer going on the cost of living at PMQ subsequently. Um, and I've been picking up, you know, a little bit of contradiction about what people are supposed to be saying when they're knocking on doors in various wards. Um, in my sort of reporting on the local elections, certainly, you know, on the canvases that I've been on, it's not necessarily been the first thing that's coming up when people open their doors at Partygate, I mean. Is is this an issue for Labour or, you know, are they, are they likely to to have a good showing because of all of these woes put together for the Tories. So I, I really wouldn't focus on the locals that much. You and I, Anoush, remember the, the 2014 run up to the 2015 election and it was easy to get caught in the polls at the time which suggested, I very much did this, that Ed Miliband might become Prime Minister and that the Labour Party might succeed. And I really do think increasingly that we're in a similar moment now where we're talking ourselves uh, into Keir Starmer as Prime Minister but talking to Labour MPs recently, I, I've, I'm picking up a lot of despair, I think, under the surface. And one of the main things that people feel is that there's really no narrative that unites what the Labour Party believes or is trying to do. As someone said, close your eyes and tell me what the Labour Party is now. You can't do it. And I think a good example of this is there's a document that gets sent round to the shadow front bench with three key words, uh, strength, prosperity and respect. And these are meant to be the unifying ideals of the current Labour Party. But then the slogan for the local elections is we're on your side. So how does that align with the, 
the three platitudinous words. Uh, there's also no <laughs> verb in there. So also, can I just please. just just to jump in? I, the thing I love about On Your Side is that that is also a new Tory campaign slogan. <laughs> because I, I have, was speaking to a Tory spad about this that they this suddenly changed with no warning, and they were saying that that when they get their own memos around talking points and so on, they just I think there's On Your Side and there are two others, and just randomly talking about I don't know net zero policy or whatever every so often it says brackets on your side brackets on your side and they were asking what does this mean so I love it that I mean it's it's sort of obvious politics but the way like the conservatives and labor have both landed on this phrase but also such a strange idea what you go to the pub and someone says why are you voting labor and you just say oh they're on my side really is that is that the basis on which you're going to vote for someone it just it just sounds so 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 basic and there's no as someone said there's no verb in in strength prosperity and respect you know it's not take back control it's not something that's active that gives you a sense of meaning and I really agree with this analysis that someone was putting to me yesterday which is the way you should do opposition is not to announce a flood of policies but to just pick a few unifying issues and, and be ahead of the government and even the public on them so that when something like the Ukraine crisis happens you have a pre-existing narrative into which to slot those events and help people understand why Labour would be a good government so you know you could have focused on uh, the need to, to to be resilient as a country and and not dependent as as Germany is on on Russian gas and you could have been talking extensively about the threat to austerity on our ability to do that over the past decade you know the state has been hollowed out it's harder and harder for Britain to survive on its own and the government now talks a good game on resilience but Labour could have easily owned that territory for example I think you're right I think there's something that apparently that they talk about in government which is the enduring image. So particularly ahead of the 2019 election, you know, Boris Johnson with his various photo calls and things, they were trying to put an enduring image of what the Tory party means into the nation's imagination. You know, Liz Truss does it as well. But we don't have an enduring image for the Labour Party. And maybe, you know, they would probably argue we're, you know, two years out of an election and, you know... We they, yeah, we they do argue that. Yeah, but... Having said that, law and order is such an obvious thing for them to go on. It's something that Tony Blair spoke about when um, we did the Michael Sheen, Tony Blair interview. He said, you know, we could be as progressive on gay rights as we wanted if we were really tough on law and order and antisocial behaviour, because that's what people really care about in their communities. Antisocial behaviour is really bad at the moment in this country. You pick it up everywhere you go when you're reporting on by-elections and things. And also, you know, there's the added plus that the government has been found to be breaking the law. But because they've got so many policies, I'm not saying they don't have policies policies on, on crime and, and they have been doing quite a lot on the court's backlog but uh, they they confuse it or they distract it with so many different policies. Can I just say on that, it's a bit like the policies are, are, are leaves um, but there's no branch there's no tree, there's, no, there's nothing that makes you understand how the policies link together and, and really I think good political messaging is all about having core narrative that can be expressed in you know just three or four ways and then the policies all slot into that. And not just the policies. When you go on air and you're you're being asked a question by an interviewer, again, and then people put it to me, Keir seems to see it always, or other Labour frontbenchers see it as avoiding the traps and sort of surviving the interview. If you have something you want to convey, that's a very charismatic thing. You should be excited to go on air and take the question in the direction you want to take it, which is to feed into your key ideas. But I think it's very hard for the Labour Party to do it at the moment because they don't know what their three or four ideas are. Yeah, and I mean, I suppose part of it is that they want to hold some things back until a general election. And I'm so aware in this phase that 
probably most of what Labour does doesn't really matter. And really the, what's interesting is that this is all bubbling under the surface. And you're probably right that the things that Labour MPs are worried about, I've been talking to you about Harry, will come to the fore. But the public isn't really watching right now. They're just these snatched moments where they look at Keir Starmer. And so in this period in between elections, we don't really have much of a sense of how people are going to react. And then we'll get an, a general election campaign and suddenly Labour will have its time in the spotlight. And it's really at that point whether they have come up with their message, they know what, what they're going on with the manifesto and whether Keir Starmer in particular, the person who's really going to carry the whole thing, is up to the task. Because actually, I think that there is a sense, really there's a, just a consensus that he has better people working for him now than he did before when he started. Whatever your politics, that there's been an improvement. But so much of it hangs on the leader himself, because it's almost always a man. <laughs> so so much hangs on the leader himself that, you know, that it's, it's really just about how he handles those interviews. And, and as you say, well, yeah, whether you treat those interviews like a something to escape and manage or or an opportunity to be seized because he does you know he does those lbc phone-ins and so on but there there is a feeling sometimes of i think anxiety that there are lots of pitfalls and potential traps and so on all right well i'm sure we'll be coming back to this topic many times in the weeks ahead hello it's alva here this is just a reminder that as a podcast listener you have the option of subscribing to the new statesman with a very special offer at the moment, you can subscribe from £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to www.newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Songs are like tattoos, Mitchell said on Blue. Having one written about you is immortality and fiction rolled into one. Featuring writing from our authors, including Kate Mossman on Joni Mitchell's former muse and lover, Jeremy Cliff on his journey through France before this year's presidential election, and Sophie McBain on the refugee crisis. Don't die, he kept shouting. He didn't answer when Marwa screamed back, Who is dying? Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads. Published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads wherever you get your podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. But now it's time for a section we're going to call We Ask Alva. <laughs> <laughs> So, Alva, we thought we'd uh, go over some of your podcast greatest hits. You speak brilliantly on all things, not just politics. And a particular favourite of mine and a standout for many of our listeners was your discussion with Stephen about why football occupies such a significant oh, no. place in Britain's public discourse. I'm the daughter of a huge football fan, so 
even though it has definitely never been apparent in any of our conversations, Steve, and I actually do know quite a bit about football. <laughs> the point is that, you know, whether you're a man or a woman, even if as a woman, you kind of realize that over and over again, you're in conversations where you aren't really able to contribute about football, um, you still end up <laughs> not quite seeing quite how much news and public conversation is skewed towards men's interests which are con conveyed as universal whereas women's interests are kind of seen as niche that was quite haunting to yeah. listen to <laughs> yeah <laughs> that was probably my worst time on social media when i randomly tweeted that i didn't like football and all the football bros came after me with pitchforks <laughs> it's a great point you make though. yeah it is it is think about how many times it comes up in editorial meetings at the new statesman <laughs> very true um and you did a brilliant interview with marie leconte which gave insights into the weird and wonderful world of covering westminster politics exactly you're, you're persuading people to to play ball with you and it's a completely different way of approaching politicians and getting to know people around westminster i have I have a memory during the Conservative leadership campaign in 2019. We were at the parliamentary tug of war. Matt Hancock was there doing his schmoozing. He was still in the race at that point. And he was speaking to Philip Hammond in the corner, clearly making his pitch. So I just sort of barreled over and, <laughs> and said, oh, I'm so sorry to interrupt. I'm Alva from the Evening Standard Diary. Da, da, da. I can't remember exactly what question I asked first, but Matt Hancock said, excuse me, I'm trying to have a private conversation with Philip here. And <laughs> Philip Hammond said, no, no, it's fine. I love the diary. <laughs> and he, he just clearly didn't want <laughs> to be engaged with this pitch any longer. And he gave the funniest quotes and Matt Hancock was just standing beside him looking outraged. And, you know, I told a friend about that and they were like, well, it was a bit rude to interrupt <laughs> poor Matt Hancock rude. during his leadership pitch. But that was kind of the point. Just to <laughs> but, yeah. I feel like the love of Philip Hammond on this podcast went up massively when you joined. <laughs> <laughs> and we thought we'd also remind you of the time that Stephen, uh, our previous co-host, tried to tarnish your reputation by calling you crystal adjacent. So our question today is, what happens if Northern Ireland's first minister resigns? Um, Alva, you've been looking into this this morning. I know that you were mm. frantically filing a piece just yeah. before we were recording. Oh, What's going on? And then I got my finger caught in the door. I don't know. I feel like they're connected, even though they're not. I just feel like it was the headspace I was in. <laughs> Stephen's looking sceptical. <laughs> you know when occasionally in like the office I say that you're crystal adjacent? I can't believe you're saying this on the podcast. This is a crystal adjacent opinion. <laughs> I really reject all allegations of being crystal adjacent. She kind of occasionally just like, what My will lawyers be, will, will be. be in touch, yeah, Stephen like... Bush. <laughs> At least there were, there were no clips on the podcast of Stephen calling me a princess, which was also known to happen. Wow. <laughs> Talk about sexism at Westminster. I was going to say. In, no, in very good humour. Um, oh, it's uh, so funny hearing it all back. Yeah. Well, I just thought lastly, you know, as this is supposed to be We Ask Alva, I thought I'd finally put the question to you. What did you make of Molly Mayhake's comments? <laughs> <laughs> that you ask us we never got to have. Exactly. Finally. Um, do you want a serious answer? No. Any answer, I feel like any we, answer you feel wish like, to give. Feel like we, I feel like we don't have time. <laughs> but Molly Make encapsulates, you know, 
a lot about our society yeah. and political culture, hustle culture, feminism, our relationship with money. It's all there. Yeah. And, you know, blame Stephen that we can't give our, our full answers to that one. I think that the New Statesman should do a long read on Molly May, genuinely. I think our listeners would want to know. <laughs> <laughs> that can be your legacy pitch. <laughs> all right. Well, Alva, we're going to miss you. Thanks so much. Uh, for how many How many years have you been on the podcast? Yeah, near, pretty much the whole time. So two and two and a half. Two and a half yeah. years of solid podcasting. Yeah. A lot from our bedrooms during the pandemic. We've got you a gift from the podcast team. You can probably uh, guess what it is. Thank you very much. So um, listeners can't see. So Alva, this is to make sure you never forget your favourite song, Love from the New States and Podcast Team. It's a, a sort of sound print of Devil with the Devil, licensed by Creative Commons. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Um, and also just, yeah, thank you to both of you, Harry and, and Anoush. Um, and thank you to NS Podcast listeners. It's so strange. This feels so surreal. I didn't really even think about what I would say. In keeping with the podcast yeah. every, every episode. The, the ad hoc vibe. <laughs> yeah, thank you to May, Adrian, Hugh, Chris. Yeah, Nick and Emily, who used to work on the podcast as well. And obviously Stephen and Patrick, um, who are no longer our, our co-hosts. It's been so great doing the New States and podcast. It kind of just happened by chance that I think it was just one time um, you know, we would sub in one of us if Stephen was away, and then one time Patrick and I both subbed in for Stephen while he was away with you and Ush, and then Stephen barged in in the middle, back, yeah, back, that. back from reporting from the Red Wall, <laughs> and it worked so well as a quartet that day that we just stuck with it. Yeah, and it's been great, and I think the you know New Statesman readers are so kind and so smart and always engage in such good faith I think at a time when the internet is a kind of famously horrible place <laughs> I've just never really found that with the people who listen to the podcast and it's it's just a really privileged way of getting to know your readers and listeners better so yeah thank you very much for listening and um, keep your eyes and ears open for what I do next wink wink You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, and my colleagues, Harry Lambert and Anush Shekelian. We're produced by May Robson and Adrian Bradley, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thank you so much for listening, and take care. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.